Well, this morning we are continuing our series from the book of Jonah. But before I, I dive in, um, in just a couple of weeks, Devin and I are going to do a six-week series on the Reformation. This is the 500-year anniversary of the Reformation, and um, I'm really excited about doing the, the Devin's going to do an introductory message and then five messages on um, sola fide, faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, scripture alone, and we're going to um, we're going to go through and really help you as well, encourage you, I think, about the Reformation. I want to encourage you, there's a book that I've just recently begun, and I'm really um, thrilled by it because it's one of the best books on the Reformation. It's called The Unquenchable Flame, and it's by Michael Reeves. Michael Reeves will actually be teaching at the Sovereign Grace Pastors College next year, and um, hopefully I'll be able to attend that class. But if you'd like to have a small book, paper, not expensive, and you will have a great introduction to the Reformation, I would encourage you to purchase this book. No, I'm not giving this book away this morning. Don't look under your seats. I've already, I've already highlighted it, so you don't want my highlights and stuff like that. Yeah. Lauren's over there going, oh, darn. <laughs> so... Lord, I'm going to buy one for you just because you had such a great disappointment. And yeah, you're going to have lots of time. <laughs> well, let us dive into the book of Jonah. But first, let's pray. Father, thank you for the freedom to preach your word. And to own a Bible, and to be able to read our Bible, and to be able to talk about your words in the Bible, and to be able to hear from you. Lord, thank you. What a gift it is to us. And this morning, as we study your words, once again, we ask that you would introduce yourself to us. May we meet with you face to face through the truth that we have before us. Lord, may Jonah and his story and his situation and your story in Jonah come alive to all of us. Lord, please help me to care for Grace Church through the preaching of the word in Christ's name. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to begin with a quick recap of chapter one and then dig into, into chapter two. Now, my introduction for chapter two will be a little longer than usual. So let's begin first with the proposition of Jonah one that I gave you last week is actually going to be the proposition for every week in our study in Jonah. And so the proposition for the book of Jonah is this. The book of Jonah exists to teach us to obey God's command, to share the gospel, trust his sovereignty and evangelism, and celebrate his grace towards sinners and saints. The book of Jonah exists to teach us. It exists to teach us to obey God's command as 
every book of the Bible does, to share the gospel, to trust his sovereignty in evangelism, particularly from this book, and to celebrate his grace towards sinners and saints. And the three points that I have this morning from chapter 2 are the downward path of sin, the chastising mercy of God, and the restoring grace of God. And I'll repeat those in a little bit. But back to a recap of, of just Jonah 1 so we remember where we are. Jonah is a prophet of God in the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and in the footsteps of his mentor, he mentors, he follows Elijah and Elisha. He was most likely a, a young man, part of what was known as the sons of the prophet, a school for prophets. And at the time, Jeroboam II was, was Israel's wicked king. And Jonah was sent by God as a prophet would be, he was sent by God to prophesy to Israel and to Jeroboam that if they did not repent, God's judgment would come upon them. And by the mercy of God, Jeroboam listens to Jonah. Israel repents. God relents in his judgment. And Jonah sees the mercy of God in action as a result of his prophecy. God extends grace to Israel. And I, I can't imagine the exhilaration this young prophet must have felt as he stands before this wicked king who is ravaging, in a sense, Israel. And he repents. Jonah sees the mercy of God firsthand. Well, in the book of Jonah, God again calls Jonah to prophesy. But this time it's very different. He is to go to Nineveh, a place 600 miles away. To a, it is a godless place. And he is to preach repentance to Nineveh. Nineveh is a major city, a significantly great city in the country, the nation of Assyria. It, Nineveh is a violent and it is a decadent and it's, it's an immoral and brutal and wicked place to live. They, they are a pagan country that is a pagan city. And Jonah is sent there to preach repentance. I can only imagine what he was thinking at the time. Why would God send me there? These people deserve judgment. They're pagans. And the deep hatred Jonah has in his heart towards Assyrian, as most Israelites would, brings only one response in him. In chapter 1, we see God's word comes and Jonah runs. It's fine for God to give grace and mercy to Israel, but not to a pagan nation, not to a city as wicked as Nineveh. But that's exactly what God wants to do. And this is what the story of Jonah is all about. This is a story of God's prophet rejecting God's command to once again be used as an instrument of mercy and grace towards sinners. But Jonah wants nothing to do with this plan. Nineveh was east and Jonah ran west and as far as he could possibly go in the opposite direction to the city of Tarshish. He was getting on a boat and he was going a far way. He wanted to run not just from the word of God. He wanted to run, as we see in Jonah 1, from the presence of God. 
And so he ignores God's call. He runs from God. He finds a ship. God hurls a storm. The sailors plead with their false gods for rescue. The storm gets worse. Jonah goes down into the hold and falls asleep in the boat. The sailors wake him up. Then they cast lots to see who, this, who causes this problem. And it's Jonah. He's identified. And they ask him why. And he just tells them, well, I'm running from the presence of God. And they're just, What? <laughs> This is what you're doing? And so he tells them, yeah, and, and I tell you what, just throw me overboard. Hurl me into the sea. That will solve your problem. But the, but the sailors have mercy on Jonah. And instead, they try and get the boat to shore. And God only hurls a greater storm. It only gets worse. And so finally, the sailors do. They hurl Jonah into the sea. And then they worship God. And we see the first time the mercy and grace of God towards sinners as these sailors begin to fear God and to worship Him. And that's how chapter 1 closes. Except Jonah is left drowning in the Mediterranean Sea. (laughs) And let's begin reading, starting in chapter 1 actually with verse 17. Jonah is hurled into the sea. And verse 17, this wonderful description of the sovereignty of God over his creation. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me, Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought me up. You brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then, in another wonderful act of God's sovereignty, verse 10, And the Lord spoke to the fish and had vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. It might appear that Jonah's flight from God is actually successful. As he flounders in the sea, he is on his way from leaving in his mind the presence of God. He is drowning and death is not far behind. He will end up in Sheol away from God's presence as we see here. And at this moment, it might appear that Jonah gets exactly what he had hoped for. He had rebelled against God's command. He had rejected God's word. This is the essence of sin. It's the sin that we're all guilty of in our lives. It's exactly what Adam and Eve did in the garden. And and we've carried that on. And this is where Jonah comes. This is where sin brings us. The the wages of sin is death. And this this is the moment 
This is the telling moment in Jonah's life. He gets what he wants. But there's more to the story. See, here, here I believe this, this is an Old Testament version of the prodigal son. And although the sailors hurl Jonah into the sea, he does not die. God has other plans for him. God has another story to write. And it's a gospel story in the life of Jonah. It's a gospel story for Jonah and it's a gospel story for us as well. You know, as in every Old Testament book, there is a shadow of Christ and his gospel. In chapter 1, we see Jonah willing to sacrifice his life to save the, the sailors. To die so that these sailors might live. It's a shadow of our Savior willing to sacrifice his life for us. And then we see that he goes into the belly of the whale three days and three nights. And we remember our Savior, who he himself was into the earth for three days and three nights. Now the analogy only goes so far because Jonah is not Jesus. But what we do see in this in chapter 2, we see the shadow of death and the resurrection of Christ for sure. We see again and again the saving grace of God, mercifully given to sinners to rescue them from an eternal hell. We see the grace of God given to Jonah. This, is, this, is, this miracle is a huge expression of the grace of God. And God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, modern, mo modern academia looks at this. Modern theologians, many modern theologians look at this and just say, it's a myth. It's bogus. It's not real. But what they're, just, what they're really saying is that miracles don't happen. And this is exactly what this is. It is a miracle. God in His sovereign grace. God in His saving grace. God elects, appoints a great fish to swallow Jonah. In chapter 1, the pagan sailors turn from worshiping false gods to trusting the living God. And now in chapters 2, we, we see this prominent theme again of God's sovereign and saving grace as he saves Jonah. But, but chapter 2 is quite different than chapter 1. Chapter 1 is this narrative, as we will see in chapter 3 and 4, but, but chapter 2 is different. What do, you, what do you notice about Jonah's response? What is familiar to you in Jonah's response when he finds himself in the belly of this great fish? Well, it reads like one of the Psalms, does it not? Well, the reason it reads like one of the Psalms is because it is a Psalm, a Psalm of Thanksgiving. Now, it's not a Psalm from the book of Psalms. You wouldn't find this in the 150 Psalms that we have, but Jonah is quoting many Psalms. So in 2.2, he says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Well, in Psalm 86.13, 18.6, 
David writes, in my distress, I called upon the Lord. In Psalm 86, 13, Jonah says here, out of the belly of Sheol, I cried. In Psalm 86, 13, you delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. In 2, 3, Jonah, Jonah says, you cast me into the deep into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounds me. All your waves pass and billows pass over me. And again, you see this in, in Psalm 88, 14. Oh Lord, why do you cast my soul away? And Psalm, in Psalm 5, 7 from 2, 4, you see, I will bow down in your holy temple. And you go through and you see 2, 5, let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Psalm 69, 15. So you see throughout this this psalm of Jonah's, he is quoting the psalm. This song of thanksgiving, though, didn't just come from anywhere. Where does Jonah get all these words? Where does Jonah pull from all these psalms? It came from the heart of a young prophet who knew the psalms well. Who was deeply acquainted with God's word. And now, in a time of distress... Jonah runs to the very place he has been trained to go, to God and the place of refuge. This is a wonderful psalm of thanksgiving that Jonah writes for us. And that brings us to our our main points about this, the three main points, what we will see, the downward path of sin, the chastising mercy of God, and the restoring grace of God. First, the downward path of sin. 117, Jonah has fled from God and, and, and God in his sovereignty appoints this great fish to rescue this wayward sinner. That's what God is doing. God has a plan. And as the one who rules and controls all things, it's not a problem for him to appoint a great fish to be in the right place at the right time and, and, and to rescue Jonah. Now, I can't imagine what Jonah must be thinking at this moment. I mean, he's thinking, I'm drowning. I'm going to die. I'm done with the presence of God. And then I'm going to drown. I'm sinking down. What is that? (laughs) Oh, my God. Exactly. It's a huge fish. And now all of a sudden it's like, where am I? And... Man, it stinks in here. And he is in this fish. And he realizes, I'm not dead. This is, this is sort of the, the capstone of Jonah's travels and travails. Because one of the other themes we see in Jonah is this theme of Jonah's flight as going down. Uh, verse 1 3, he went down to Joppa. Further in 1 3, so he paid the fare and went down into it, the ship, away from the presence of the Lord. 1 5, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and lay down. 1 15, so they picked up Jonah and hurled him down into the sea. And 1 17, and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was down in the belly of the whale. Listen, sin always leads us down. Sin is always a descent away from what is good and true and holy. 
to what is dark and filthy and isolated. Jonah went down. Now, living in the depths of despair, literally in the pit of despair, Jonah calls out to God in his distress. Verse 1, Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. Now listen, sin does more than distress us. It separates us from God's presence. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, what did they immediately do? They hid from the presence of the Lord. Sin separates us. Look at verse 4. Then I said, as a result of his sin, Jonah says, I am driven away from your sight. Verse 5, the waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. I just, this, that is one of the, the, the humorous pictures I have. There's Jonah sitting in this stinky belly of this great fish. I mean, there's, there's, there's food that's been digesting. It's acidic in there. And he's, he's just got weeds around his head. Just seaweed wrapped around his head, sitting there thinking... How did I get here? And most likely, I mean, it, it is acidic. Most, his, his skin's probably bleached white. He's not looking good. And so here, he's just, I'm driven away. The water's closed in over me. Weeds are up around my head. I went down, verse 6, to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought my life up from the pit. He's in the pit. He's in prison. Bars are around him. Sin does more than distress us. It separates us from God's presence. It leads us away from God. We go down. And that is the first point. The downward path of sin. The second point is the chastising mercy of God. Martin Luther called Jonah's plight the severe mercy of God. And that's not an oxymoron. Mercy is kind, but it is also severe. Verse 3, here is the description of God's chastising mercy. You, Lord, not the sailors, not my decision, You, Lord, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Your flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Who drove him away? Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Jonah is fully aware of God's sovereignty in this situation. He knows the fish just didn't happen by. Oh, there's a fish. I'll catch a ride. He knows that God is the one who put him into the sea, into the fish. It is a severe mercy against sin, but it is also a loving mercy to save him from his sin. 
the Lord responds to our sin the same way. Sometimes His mercy is severe in chastising us when we are sinning. His heart is filled with compassion to rescue us from the sin and the danger we have put ourselves in. But Jonah is aware that his circumstances are caused by his sin. And in his newfound humility, he doesn't complain against God's justice. He doesn't accuse God of wrongdoing. He literally does understand his affliction is from the hand of God. And he sees it as appropriate. And he has hope in the chastising mercy of God. He has hope. Look at, look at verse, verse 4. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. Look at the end of verse 6. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. He sees and understands God's afflicting hand, his chastising mercy as something good and it has brought him back into the presence of God. Sinclair Ferguson says this. He said, few principles are more important in the Christian life than the practical recognition of the sovereign God and his gracious determination to draw us near to himself, whatever the cost may be. When his purposes involve afflictions and suffering of any kind, the knowledge that he is sovereignly overruling is the only thing that can preserve us from a craven fear or a sense of despair and bring us a measure of joyful and willing acceptance of our situation. Only when we recognize that God's aim is to make us like Christ and that he works all the events of our lives together for this purpose will we begin to rejoice in the good that is produced out of our tribulation. He doesn't only mean... Listen, it's, it's wonderful and I, you have been... Prior to my coming here, I know you have been so well taught on how to approach suffering under the sovereign care of God. To trust God, to not complain or accuse God. And all suffering isn't a result of sin. But sometimes suffering is a result of sin. Sometimes tribulation, sometimes when we are chastised and we are disciplined, it is painful, as Hebrews tells us. It is painful. And so sometimes the circumstances we find ourselves in are a result of sin. And then when that happens, we shouldn't be complaining either, but accepting the chastising mercy of God. Look, look at verse 5 and 6. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountain. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. We should marvel at the great length God will go to care for and save his children. We should marvel at that cast into the sea, swallowed by a fish, deep into the depths, wrapped in seaweed, imprisoned for life. Those are the thoughts that Jonah has. My clothing for the rest of my life until this fish finally digests me is seaweed. That he would use the miracle 
of a great fish to rescue Jonah for Jonah and Nineveh's sake is astounding. You see, this story is not about a great fish. There's only three times in all of Jonah that the great fish is mentioned. The story is about a great God, a marvelous God, a saving God, a loving God, a merciful God, that he would use the miracle of God becoming flesh, the virgin birth, the perfect plan to pay for mankind's sin by his death and resurrection. That's even more astounding. This is a miracle. Christ coming is even a greater miracle. And we have a marvelous God and we should marvel at the lengths he goes to save his children. Listen, God is good beyond your ability to understand. And God is loving beyond your ability to comprehend. And most important, he is gracious beyond the depths of your sin. As he is in Jonah's life here. So God uses the chastising mercy of God to bring us back as he's done with Jonah. But he doesn't stop with chastising mercy. And the third point is this, the restoring grace of God. And that restoring grace of God is replete throughout this, this chapter. One seventeen. God appoints a great fish. 2.2, two, two, he calls out to the Lord, and the Lord answers him. 2.4, he's driven, but yet again he'll look on God's holy temple. 2.7, I remember the Lord, my prayer came to you in your holy temple. God heard his prayer. 2.9, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice with what I have vowed, I will pay. And then he says this, salvation is from the Lord. And then 2.10, the grace goes on. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomits. Jonah is released from his prison. What a story of grace that God has towards sinners. And that is what's behind the entire story of Jonah. God has grace towards a wicked nation and a wicked city named Nineveh. And he wants Jonah to go there to preach repentance because he wants to extend his grace. He wants to show how far and how wide his grace goes. And Jonah refuses. And so the first work of grace and, and salvation and restoration is in the life of Jonah before we even get to Nineveh. Thankfully, 2.7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Thankfully, God does not allow Jonah to remain in this downward spiral of sin or under his chastisement indefinitely. He opens Jonah's eyes and he opens Jonah's heart and Jonah remembers God. Brothers and sisters, that is what we must do when we are in the throes of struggle with sin and temptation. We must remember God. And like Jonah, we must come up with psalms to 
One of, the, one of the ways to do that is to come up, remember the Psalms, cry out to the Lord, run to Him, to, to Him as our refuge. And of course, God hears His prayer. And as we see in this Psalm of Thanksgiving, the restoring grace of God just explodes in the life of this man. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, says, Jonah now realized that God sent him into the deep darkness, into the great fish, not to destroy him, but to save him. What a wonderful gospel story the book of Jonah is. You know, in 2.6, Jonah's sin had cast him down. At the roots of the mountain, I went down to the land. But God brought him up. You brought up my life from the pit. 2.4, Jonah's sin had cast him out. I am driven away from your sight. But God brought him in. My prayer came to you in your holy temple. God rescued Jonah. And although he had deserted God, the fact that he had not drowned showed miraculously that God had not deserted him. Nor does he ever desert you or me. When we are despairing and we are discouraged and feeling condemned because of our sin, we must remember like Jonah that God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hebrews 13, 5. Nothing shall ever separate you from the love of God. This was the great lesson Jonah learned. God is merciful to sinners. And Jonah was not merciful. And that is why God had a lesson to teach him. Listen, in, in four verse, chapter 1, verse 4 and 5, God hurls this great wind upon the sea and there's a mighty tempest on the sea so the ship is threatened to break up. So the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it to save them. But Jonah goes down into the inner part of the ship and goes asleep, falls fast asleep. Jonah observes these sailors crying out to their false gods. And I would submit to you, he just despises them. He knows that's not going to work. And he doesn't care. He has no concern for them. And he goes down and he falls asleep. But in 2.8, look, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. I think Jonah has a change of heart. He saw these sailors in chapter 1 paying regards to vain idols. He saw them forsaking their hope of steadfast love. And now his heart is changed. He's a different man because he has seen God express his steadfast love to him. He is not aware that these sailors were converted, were saved, because he was tossed overboard. It wasn't until he was into the sea that the sailors cried out to God, sacrificed to God, made vows to God, gave their lives to God. He doesn't know that, but he sees. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I 
with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. What does he vow? He vowed to be a prophet. He vowed to follow after the Lord. It means he's fulfilling. He's going to fulfill his vow to go to Nineveh because salvation belongs to the Lord. And no longer will I look, cast aside the, the, those who are perishing. But instead I will look on them like God has looked on me with compassion. Jonah has a change of heart. And this has to be our heart towards those who are unbelieving. This has to be how we see our community around us. That they are, they are paying regards to vain idol. They are forsaking their hope of steadfast love. But we know salvation belongs to the Lord. And that it is the gospel, that it is the power of God to salvation. And so we stand here in this city, in this community. We stand here with the words of life. And like the sailors who have come to faith in Christ, Jonah in verse 9 renews his commitment. Look, look how similar it is to what the sailors said. In verse 9, Jonah, but I with voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. And then in verse 16 of chapter 1, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Oh, when God's mercy arises, when God's mercy comes and overwhelms and it saves, the response is worship. And finally, we see the ultimate in God's sovereignty in Jonah's life here. He speaks to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, if you've ever thrown up, it's not a pretty sight. I'm assuming Jonah wasn't the only thing that came out. Could you imagine? You're there, Paul Rohr fishing on dry land. <laughs> oh my. <laughs> Weeds about his head, stinking. And yet, that is the mercy of God. God's sovereign purpose for Jonah and the city of Nineveh at this moment is back on track. So what are the lessons that we can learn from this story, this adventure of Jonah's? We know that sin takes us downward. We know that God chastises us with mercy when we are sinning. And we know that God restores us with grace. Because of his son. Well, two lessons I want us to take away today. Number one is this. God never gives up on us. If you are running from him now, if you're compromising your Christian life, or if you even feel imprisoned in sin, just know the Lord will do whatever is necessary to rescue you. That's the good news of the gospel. Christ died that we would no longer not only experience the penalty of sin, but experience the imprisonment of sin. That we would no longer be enslaved to sin. And that when we come to Him, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you're sinking down, let me encourage you, 
Be like Jonah this morning. Cry out to God in your distress. God never gives up on us. Secondly, God's sovereign purposes will always come to pass. He has a plan for you individually and this church corporately. He has a plan for us that he has revealed to us in scripture. The Bible binds us to this plan. We don't have an option to opt out of this plan of God to be his instruments like Jonah, to go into the world like Jonah, to represent him like Jonah, to preach repentance like Jonah, to tell the world of the good news of the gospel like Jonah. God has a plan for us and his purposes will always come to pass. And even when we stray or are a bit wayward or we're just lazy or we're fearful or we're just unwilling, God in his chastising mercy will help us come back so that we can fulfill his plans. And while his call may not be easy, listen, it always brings glory to God and good to others. Others have gone this way. Think about, think about Abram. He left everything behind. He left his country. He left his family. He wandered. He didn't know quite where he was going. But God spoke. God's word came and told him to go. And go he did, although it was not easy. Moses who could not speak well, was told, go to the most powerful man in the world and tell him, let my people go. That was not easy for him to do. Mary was told, listen, I know you're a teenager. You've never been with a man, but you are going to conceive and you are going to have a baby. That could not have been easy, especially in the culture of that day, being an unmarried woman. And most importantly, Jesus on his throne has the Father turn to him and say, go, become one of them. And not only become one of them, live as they live, experience what they experience, thirst and hunger and pain and then suffer and die. And then, and then, I will forsake you. But Abraham just didn't go. All nations have become blessed through him. Moses saw a nation freed. Mary saw a savior born. And Christ rose from the dead and extends the grace of the gospel to humanity. Brothers and sisters, this, this is a costly life that we live. It is costly and sacrificial for us to follow Christ, but it is worth it. God doesn't promise to make our life safe. He promises to make our lives fruitful to glorify him. C.S. Lewis describes the costly joy of following God's sovereign plans for our lives in the Chronicles of Narnia. The children find themselves in a land 
named Narnia, cursed by a white witch where it's always winter, but never Christmas. And soon in their travels through Narnia, they encounter Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, and they're told about Aslan, the promised savior king. And Mr. Beaver tells the children that he is a lion. And Susan says, ooh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave, braver than most, or the most silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is not safe, but he is sovereign and he is good. He is not safe with regard to our sin. He wants to eradicate it. He wants to deal a death blow to it. And he will do it as a loving and good and merciful and the grace-filled God that he is. And he will do the same for us to fulfill what we have been called to do, to go into all the world, to represent him in this world that is lost and perishing. God will do whatever is necessary to fulfill his plans in us and through us because he is good. All his plans are good. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are sovereign, that all your plans for us are good and righteous and holy and are meant to bring glory to you Lord, we want to bring glory to you. We are here to bring glory to you. So please, Father, use Grace Church. Use us individually and use us corporately. Send us, Lord, that we may bring glory to your name. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.